First Realm, Season 1, Episode 1. Normally, when you see a fairy, it is in a flower field. That is one of the only times fairy hover long enough outside their kingdoms for a non-avian eye to adjust to see them. The colors of fairy wings blend in with the petals of whatever particular flowers they are resting on. They serve no specific purpose being among the flowers. They just like to rest there sometimes. It is a beautiful sight. I can't say that I'm allowed to have an opinion on such a matter, but it is lovely nonetheless. The flowers will look more bountiful than normal. That's how you can tell the fairy are there. The buds are lush, and when you think you saw a rush of petals floating swiftly in the breeze, it was really just the wings of fairy as they gracefully flew away. I came across what appeared to be a pile of petals, similar to leaves gathered under trees during the autumnal equinox in our hemisphere. The pinks, purples, creams, blues, and emerald greens were in one big heap, and I could hear the gentle hum of mass fairy conversation. I am keen to the sounds of fairy, so I knew this to be a prayer. When they sensed a presence nearby, the humming came to an abrupt halt, and it looked like a storm of petals formed a colorful but violent tornado drifting swiftly away from me. They were gone before I could blink three times. What they revealed both horrified and intrigued me. The fairy were gathered around the small, delicate carcass of a cornifowl. Obviously freshly slaughtered, the baby unicorn's blood was a deep purple with sparkles so minuscule one would just assume the vision to be a combination of moonlight and magic, but really this is just a natural trait of all unicorn blood. The blood formed a slowly moving trail resembling a small winding river through the forest bed. This surely wasn't all the blood this little cornifall had, and I wondered where the rest of it went. Its eyes were closed, no doubt done by the fairy before their prayer ritual, and its coat had been poached. It was a disturbing sight, though I'm generally not permitted to have such an opinion. I was guided here to discover it, not to be emotionally disturbed by it. Unicorns are strong and well-protected by fairy and various forest and meadow creatures when they travel, so this lone cornifowl was certainly odd. There are only a few creatures among us strong enough to kill a unicorn, a centaur being one of them. It is no secret that the centaurs and unicorns have feuded for ages, but I assure you, this was no work of a centaur. Centaurs don't kill unless the circumstances are extreme, and I can't come up with any circumstance where a centaur would slaughter a cornifowl, as it wouldn't be a fair fight. Murder is not usually in the stars for us. Since the last blood moon, there have been three known unicorn murders, but they were all elders. This is the first cornifowl killing, and I have no idea why it happened, or why I was guided to find it. My celestial guides brought me here to witness this, so it is now my matter in some way. Centaurs are guided by the stars, mostly at night, but sometimes during the daytime. And when our celestial guides lead us to something, it becomes ours. We are not allowed by law or by nature to have our own feelings or thoughts about it. Or about most things, really. And we certainly can't disobey or alter the guidance. We operate solely on the guidance of the universe and serve as the universe's primary actors and messengers among all living creatures. That being said, I still think fairy wings are beautiful, but I dare not discuss that with anyone else. I approached the carcass. The problem with the stars is that they will guide us to things, but they rarely give us answers or guidance on what to do with those things. 
They give us the absolute bare minimums worth of information, and it is in our destiny to move forward with it. I wondered silently what kind of creature would do something like this and why. The vast, dark, starlit sky overhead had no further guidance for me, and I certainly wasn't going to press the issue. Young unicorns are stubby and fluffy. They almost look like tiny donkey ponies with white fluff for fur and goofy looks on their faces all the time. Their baby teeth are always too big for their mouths, and they have the worst peripheral vision I have ever witnessed. Their manes are frizzy, and they are incredibly clumsy and uncoordinated. When they trip on something, they usually fall face first onto the ground, as if after tripping, they had no idea what would happen next, and falling was a total surprise. Once I saw one fall backwards into a huge puddle of mud, and all that was sticking out of the mud was its tiny horn and buck teeth. It remained in the mud blowing bubbles from its snout and giggling until I pulled it out. That was in daylight when it is safer for the cornifall to be out and about. I don't know how or why this one was out at night by itself. Cornifall have little swirly rainbow horns above their brows, and as they mature, those horns turn silver in color. The horns of unicorns who mate enough to produce three or more generations of offspring turn into a metal called platinum. The first unicorn slaughtered after the blood moon had a platinum horn, and we only knew this because the unicorn was so old that the platinum had fused to the skull, leaving a trace amount of metallic residue behind. The poacher stripped it of its hide and horn. I can't imagine what value a platinum unicorn horn would be. It is known throughout our land that the fur of any unicorn that reaches maturity, meaning it has a silver-colored horn or a platinum one, contains microscopic specks of diamonds at the tips of each of the fur strands. I'm not sure what value this would be either, but poached fur is so far the only thing that these murders have in common. My cousin, Heldafor, found the unicorn elder with the platinum horn. I found the other two elders and this cornifowl. Unicorns reproduce based solely on love for one another and mutual agreement to bear young. They mate for life. They are the most innocent creatures in existence and serve the universe in spreading love, unity, and peace throughout the lands. Centaurs and unicorns are both divine, just in different ways. The diamond specks on the ends of the first strands of unicorn in the pair who bears the young become the purest, whitest diamonds of all. Since its fur was gone, it is unknown if the unicorn with the platinum horn bore any offspring or if it was the mate of one who did, or perhaps both. I've always felt like a bit of a misfit among my Celeste team, but I can fit in well when I have to. I have a few acquaintances in the fairy, cat, and wolf communities, but I don't speak of it around my Celeste team. Sometimes I have thoughts or feelings that seem to come from my own being. I'm not sure why. I've wondered if the other centaurs have these as well and just hide them, or if perhaps I am the only one like this. Another unique thing about me is that I have quite a bit of color in my eyes. There is another centaur about my age with specks of color in just one eye. I'm not sure why some of us have eyes like this, and asking these kinds of questions will get you in trouble with the Celestine elders. So I just let it be. Most centaurs' eyes are dark, not quite black, but close to it. As they age into the completion of their lives, the constellation they are destined to serve in after death from this life begins to surface in their eyes. Sometimes these are newly forming constellations, so it usually isn't until death that we are able to determine precisely in which constellation 
they will have the honor to serve. I am Astromis. I'm still in Saint-June form as I have recently reached my 19th winter solstice. Centaurs stay in my form, which the fairies say resembles that of a young but matured male human, for about 30 solstices of their birth chart. Once we have matured that long as Saint-Junes, we hibernate through the next solstice and its following equinox. The actual timing depends on our birth charts. After the next full moon following the equinox, we awaken in our fully matured centaur bodies. It is then up to the hatch to determine the elders of the Celestines, though recently Saint-Junes my age and older have been participating in the hatch as well for practice, status, and feathers, or even sometimes leather for our hallums and quivers. I don't know if I believe humans exist. They seem like such strange mythical creatures. The fairy said they share our universe but live in a different realm, and that's why we don't interact with them. The fairy gossip a lot, but they don't generally lie. Sometimes things do get lost in translation, because in order for me to hear fairy, many of them have to speak at the same time. When they speak as a group, it sounds like a bunch of high-pitched echoes trying to give me silly messages. I'm not supposed to be communicating with the fairy as much as I do, but there is no real way for my Celestine to check on me, unless they happen to come across us together due to intertwining guidance from the stars. But honestly, if they came across us, all they would see is flower petals scattering nervously about, and it would look like a bunch of fairy just got scared away from harassing me. If that occurred, I would feign relief and walk away like nothing happened. Centaurs don't have a good relationship with fairy. Centaurs don't really have a good relationship with any other beings, but we generally maintain neutral relationships with various other communities. Even though we have great strength and power, we follow the guidance from our celestial guides and would only cause harm in extreme cases. It would be considered weak in spirit for us to use excessive force on a being less powerful than us, which is most beings. We are sturdy and strong, so many of the smaller communities, like fairy or even sometimes wolves, generally fear us. We don't answer to anyone except our celestial guides and, in times of necessity, our celestine elders. Or, in dire circumstances, the Council of Celestines will provide guidance as voted upon by the elders serving on the Council. Our independence and lack of consideration for other communities when making our decisions sometimes rubs them the wrong way. I usually visit a fairy kingdom every new moon and waning gibbous. I'm not allowed to go out on the nights of full moons as I'm still considered too young and vulnerable. Even though I have a strong stature similar to that of my father when he was my age, I am no match for a full moon. No creature is. I don't know of any centaur who would go out alone during a full moon. When I see the fairy, they usually have some sort of apparel that they've made for me out of leaves, vines, flowers, and once mini pumpkins. They dress me and sometimes braid my hair or make me flower crowns. I usually let them, but I have to remember to take the braids and flowers out of my hair so my father doesn't know where I've been. For the most part, my father is busy serving on the Council of Celestines, so he doesn't even notice that sometimes I dress more elaborately than most Saint-Junes. I have to take credit for it, though, so most centaurs just think I take particular interest in my appearance, if they think anything at all. I felt a slight tingling above my head and heard a faint ringing in my ears. A guide must be trying to communicate with me. I closed my eyes to receive my message, to feel it through my being. It felt like a warm light was entering my body through the crown of my head, and when it reached my solar plexus, I felt a force pulling me towards something else. 
I translated the feeling to walk forward, and I moved toward a rock pile next to the cornifal carcass. I saw a small wilted flower with turquoise and black petals. I looked closer and saw that it was a fairy. It wasn't dead because its wings still had their color, but it looked wilted and was shivering. I picked up a leaf and wrapped the fairy in it, holding it to my chest to warm it up. Fairy have three species, Traga, Fetma, and Prasia. Each species can mate with the others, and fairy reproduce based on the needs of the fairy kingdoms and the natural environment. This one was most likely a Traga due to its exceptionally frail frame and the dark colors swirling in its wings. A Traga would likely be injured in crossfire, as they tend to be the bravest, but also the most physically weak of the species. Bravery and physical weakness isn't always the best combination, but this is how the Traga are, and so it is. Cinnamon is known for waking up a fairy, but causes a bit of a jolt, and I wasn't sure this fairy could handle that right now. There also wasn't any cinnamon nearby, so I just waited. After some time, the fairy slowly opened its eyes and looked terrified when it saw me. It didn't have the strength to do anything but look up at me with its wide, tired eyes, so I rocked it slightly and petted on the head with my finger. This seemed to relax it, and it started moving its mouth and hands as if trying to communicate something to me. No one can hear a single fairy clearly, except other fairy, unicorns, and toads. I can hear a gentle hum if a few are singing or speaking at the same time, but when this little one moved its mouth and hands, I heard nothing. I had to find more fairy or a celestine toad to translate. Fairy are tiny, colorful creatures. Their wings are as long as their entire bodies, and the colors in their wings are either clearly defined with patterns and shapes, or swirled together like newborn cornifal horns. They are born in batches of three, known as a thrace, and they are very tiny when they are first born, but their wings are always full size from the moment they are born until they die, at which time their colorless wings turn to dust and fertilize their burial sites for flowers to bloom the following season. When they are born, their giant wings are wrapped snugly around their bodies, allowing their species to be evident immediately by the colors of their wings, and the wings swaddle all parts of them except for their tiny, sharp faces. They are born asleep, and fairy prayer in their kingdom wakes them up to blink their eyes for the first time. Soon after, they unfold their large, silky wings and take the first flutter. One of the things fairy are known for is creating extravagant feasts and celebrations, so whenever a Thrace is born, the kingdom hosts treetop celebrations for fairy from all kingdoms to come and celebrate the fairy triplets. My father wouldn't question my interaction with this fairy since the guides brought me to it. I brought the fairy back to our Celestine's cave to ask my father for a toad. I would have preferred to find a wild toad to translate without going through an elder, but this seemed to be the quickest way, and friendly toads in the wild are few and far between. One must be careful with the toads. Once captured, they are assigned to a Celestine elder for life, and though they are very bitter, they remain loyal to the elder's commands. Not only can they hear fairy, but they have healing powers in their saliva. They are treated to a life of luxury in Celestine fountains as compensation should the need arise to take their saliva. They would never give their saliva willingly without some sort of compensation. Their saliva is considered the home of their souls, and it spiritually and physically pains them to dispense it. It is wise to approach them with caution and with an elder. Our cave was built into a cliffside. Some centaurs build their caves in lower land to be by the water, and some build them into rock formations. Ours is very high for a cave, but it allows my father a good line of vision to be able to watch and monitor the caves of other Celestines in his jurisdiction 
as a council elder. I personally like it because it provides a splendid view of the sunrises on one side of the property and sunsets on the other, but I don't regularly admit that. I approached my father. Father, my guides brought me to this ferry. I found it near a carcass of a skinned cornifowl. Could you bring me to a toad for translation? My father is brilliant and has always seemed larger than life to me. I suppose I am allowed to admire him, but I would never do it out loud. He regularly dominates the hatch and does not only serve as our Celeste team's elder, but he represents our Celeste team and four other Celeste teams on the council. His chestnut wavy hair skimmed his broad shoulders and I could see strands of gray peeking out in the moonlight, showing his age. Astromus, I must assume a different fairy produced that crown resting on your head. Come, I will take you to the pond. I shamefully ripped the crown off my head and threw it aside. I forgot some fairy put it there earlier that day. I walked behind my father to the toad pond. Even my father's tail was magnificent. It was thick and bold with weaves of thorns and braids surrounded by lush, wavy locks. The thorns are woven in for extra protection from attackers. We don't have attacks frequently, but when they do, they are fierce and brutal. There have been wars among the centaurs, even as recently as in my lifetime. And when I was born, the dragons came to our hemisphere, escaping a particularly cold solstice, and one of the Celestines wouldn't agree to provide them with necessities from our land. The argument went so far, as the council and the Celestines were in such disagreement, that they went to war with each other and with the dragons. I heard this was a vicious war with battles lasting moon cycles and ending in vast bloodshed. So many centaurs were killed. Some Sontjuns were taken hostage by the dragons to be used as leverage, others slain. My father fought in that war, and it is the reason he wears the thorns in his tail. Thorns from our land are so strong, they can decapitate a centaur with enough force behind them, so it is handy to have them in your tail if you are being attacked from behind. It isn't difficult for most centaurs to take a stance on the matter from that war. The centaurs were not guided to assist the dragons, therefore they were not obligated to. However, the dragons needed to survive, and we had enough food and supplies to give them without sacrificing anything for ourselves. To me, it seemed so ridiculous that this could have turned centaurs against dragons and against each other. I don't understand why some of the council elders refused to commit Celestines to help the dragons. But it was not guided, therefore it must have been chosen, and so it was. My father's helm, the straps centaurs used to hold their quivers to their bodies and carry shivs, was made of the leather of fallen centaurs killed in battle and from skins taken from the hatch. The hallam straps crossed perfectly into an X over his broad chest. The straps extended over his shoulders from his back quiver, crossing over the middle of his chest and then wrapping around his midsection just below his ribs. His hallam and quiver were very worn from years of use but are as strong as they come. Leather of a centaur who died in battle is considered sacred and carries that lifetime of the centaur's strength with it throughout eternity. Centaur arrows gain strength not only from their quality and materials during creation, but from the history of their materials at the hatch and from battles. My father's arrows are epic. When the sun directly shines on a centaur's arrow, you could hear a gentle ping as a spark infuses the arrow with extra power. However, trying to change your arrows in the sun will prove fruitless, as the extra power only lasts an instant. Once I saw my father run through a field in the bright sunshine on a special mission assisting the dragon community to catch a stray baby dragon, and the sun pinging off his archery created song-like frequencies. I was amazed by the whole thing.
That day, Hildefor was minding me, and seeing the look on my face, she looked down at me with concern and confusion on her face. I remember wiping the grin off my face and the wonder out of my eyes as quickly as I could. I seriously need to mind myself better. To finish the story, my father leaped higher than any centaur had been known to leap and caught the little dragon after it singed part of his shoulder because the baby couldn't control its own fire. My father, a few Celestine elders, and some unicorns traveled to the southern hemisphere and returned the baby dragon to its family. It sounds like an easy task for a centaur to catch a baby dragon, but after watching that ordeal, I'm not sure I'd want to do it. Unlike adult dragons, the babies can dart through trees very quickly, and since they are just learning to fly, they will randomly and rapidly fall out of the sky with great force. There was fire and scratching and screeching and a lot of broken trees. My father's shoulder still displays the burn wounds. I remember that little dragon, and I remember thinking it was adorable, not that I'm allowed to have an opinion on such a matter. I remember thinking it was a lot smaller than I would think a dragon could ever be, even for a baby, and it had red and black scales and a deceivingly large wingspan. Fully extended, its shiny black wings could have easily enveloped my father. Centaurs can almost look like they are flying when they leap, but those leaps are nothing compared to what a dragon can accomplish in midair. My father stopped at a large stone fountain. I heard the subtle splashing of toads trying to clandestinely avoid us. The pool was shaped like a third quarter moon with the backsplash of stones placed perfectly to form a few wide stairs housing a sundial at the top. There were plants gracing the water's surface and various mini fountains placed through the ledges. Colossus, come up at once, my father calmly demanded. I've never heard him raise his voice and I doubt he ever would. His tone is always the perfectly fatherly combination of steady calmness and eerie demand. Whenever he spoke, he meant business. I heard a reluctant splash, and Colossus produced himself. My father, of course, had the largest toad I've ever seen. If I were allowed to have an opinion on the matter, I would say he's very ugly. Everything about him is oversized, and he has an air of laziness surrounding him at all times. Colossus hates being bothered to do anything except maybe eating flies and gummy tarts left over from party trays. He moves very quickly when gummy tarts and flies are involved. Now may I serve thee? Colossus croaked the words with blatant annoyance we were there. Colossus, assist Astromus to the best of your abilities. My father turned to me. Astromus, I leave you to honor your guidance. Speak with me after sunrise concerning the cornifowl. He grasped my left forearm, nodded at me, and left. I dipped my finger into the fountain and let the fairy drink the small drops of water as they dripped off the tip of my finger. I live and breathe to serve thee, Colossus croaked with a slimy and sarcastic tone, sending a submissive look toward my departing father, his eyes squinting and his lips curling in a wicked smile. Colossus turned and glared at me. I know he's too rude to ask me what I needed, so I just started speaking. There was no time to waste as the tiny fairy in my hand looked like its eyes were going to bulge out of its head from fear. This fairy is trying to speak with me. Could you please translate? I... Colossus waved his fat webbed hand, gesturing for me to put the fairy on the stone ledge of the fountain. I tried to put the fairy down, and it started squirming and pinching my hand, trying not to fall out of my palm, so I sat on the ledge and placed my hand down as a podium for the fairy to speak from my palm. 
Colossus looked unamused as the fairy gestured and squeaked at him. He pursed his fat lips and rolled his eyes listening to the fairy. When the fairy was done, it fell down in my hand, sighing heavily, clearly exhausted from the speech. The fairy looked down at the leaf I previously wrapped it in and casually took a bite out of it, chewing and looking up at me wide-eyed as if waiting to hear the outcome of what just transpired. Colossus took a deep, annoyed breath. It, Colossus emphasizing the it to make sure we knew that he doesn't acknowledge fairy as anything but pests, said a sanchoon dragged the cornerfowl into the woods, skinned it alive, took some of its blood, and left it to die. It was whacked out of the air by a branch held by the Saint-Jean. Colossus waved his hand and smirked at me, thrilled to accuse a Saint-Jean of such a heinous act. Your fairy saw no other unicorns nearby. Did you get the fairy's name? I asked. Colossus pursed his lips, raised one eyelid, and looked at the fairy. The fairy squeaked what seemed like it could have been three syllables and calmly took another bite of the leaf. Pagatin, he croaked through clenched teeth. I smiled at Pagatin and held out my finger. Nice to meet you. Pagatin smiled and with a mouthful of leaf squeaked something that seemed about five syllables long back at me and shook the tip of my finger with both hands, losing balance and falling into my palm. I threw three flies I took from the cornifel carcass into the pond for Colossus and walked away. I looked down at Pagatin, who was still chewing and now holding what was left of the leaf in both hands. Pagatin's wings were all black with streaks of greenish-blue identically marked on both wings, meeting on the fairy's back, making a valley-like outline. Where the wings meet a fairy's body, they turn into fairy flesh, which is harder than their wings and looks kind of like layers of finely woven lace over their bodies. They have two arms and two legs. Their arms are normally similar in color to their sharp faces, and their legs are like little black twigs with five evenly spaced and sized toes on each foot. They are born with short hair, which can grow very long throughout their lifetimes. Their hair, like their faces, often resembles that of a centaur. Can you fly now? Pagatin crumbled and shoved the remainder of the leaf in its mouth and nodded. Go back to your kingdom and let them know what has transpired. Alert the fairy and other unicorn communities that other cornifowl may be in danger. Prepare a proper burial for the fallen cornifowl. In the blink of an eye, Pagatin was in the air flying away from me. There is no way a centaur did this, but fairy generally don't lie. A sanjun with a tree branch skinning and draining the blood of a cornifowl? This just doesn't seem like it could be real.